0: So, good afternoon, Dr. Tim Rideout. Mm-hmm. It's great to have you on Scotonomics, and um you know we we haven't had very many um uh, Scottish economists on, so it's great that you're here today. Could you tell our audience um something about your academic background? Okay.
1: Well, I've I've actually done quite a few degrees because uh, I did a, a BA Honours at the University of Cape Town, which was uh, what in, in South Africa they call a double major, so it was in Geography and Economics. And then I did a Master's degree, which was in Economic Geography, also in Cape Town. Uh, and then I, ended 1984, I came to Edinburgh and did a PhD. Again, it was in Economic Geography, and that was at Edinburgh University. Um,
0: now, tell me, why and when did you become more interested in central banking?
1: Uh, well, I've had to find out about central banks simply because uh, I've been trying to um, uh, make sure that the policy for Scotland, when it becomes independent, uh, is that we will have our own currency as soon as possible. And um, you know, that was back in um, 2016, 2017, uh, and as, over the period since then, I've had to find out about what, the, uh, you know, what part the central bank plays in uh, introducing the currency uh, in considerable detail.
0: Okay, and when you did that, Tim, were there things
1: that surprised you? Uh, there were sort of issues that I wasn't aware of. Um, I think uh, you know, I've had to look at the sort of the details of the double entry accounting that uh, underlie the banking system uh, and things which are not obvious to people, like um, uh, the fact that uh, uh, what you could refer to as central bank money or base money never actually leaves the central bank. So, you know, you might be rather surprised to discover that the, the sort of uh, trillion pounds or so that is in Bank of England reserve accounts can never actually leave the Bank of England. It just goes round uh, between those accounts. Yeah, I
0: think that's uh, that probably is surprising for a lot of people to really understand the double entry bookkeeping aspect of it as well. Um, so could you explain to our audience what the core functions of a central bank are? Um,
1: I suppose at its basis, basics, the uh, uh, the central bank is the banker's bank. Um, so, in the sense that you know, an individual has a bank account at Santander or Barclays, uh, then uh, and a company like my own XYZ Maps, you know, we have a bank account. In our case, it's at Santander, uh, and that's where the company's money sits. The same thing applies to a bank. So, you know, Barclays is a company, and Barclays therefore has. Uh, a, a bank account the people who provide the bank account to the commercial banks are the central bank so barclays money you know the money which belongs to barclays as opposed to barclays customers is in its account at the bank of england
0: yeah so i was going to say so the central bank really to a great extent controls the commercial banks it regulates the commercial banks
1: yes it's the Uh, the monetary authority so uh, it's responsible for the integrity and stability and so forth of the uh, of the financial system
0: and I believe as well that it um, supports and regulates the payment system
1: Uh, in the case of the UK the the sterling payment system which is the means by which money would get from say your account in Santander to your friend's account in Barclays uh, is going via uh, a sort of a hybrid payment system, which is partly done by the commercial banks and uh, mostly uh, owned and regulated by the Bank of England.
2: Uh, Tim, we had a really interesting conversation with Olaf Mergersen, um who is on the reserve board at the Icelandic Central Bank, and he said during the financial crisis in 2008, the, the, the most important thing that the Central Bank of Iceland did was to continue to allow payments to circulate in the Icelandic economy meaning the economy didn't crash and he said that this payments aspect of a central bank is often something that's misunderstood and never really spoken about its importance. Would you agree that's a crucial role for a bank and what would happen if we didn't have a central bank that was able to help us keep money flowing if we had any kind of um, financial crisis again?
1: Well this actually touches on one of my points about sterlingization which uh, uh, is that 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 would st- the, this you know as proposed by the Growth Commission the you know the idea that Scotland Australian could just carry on using sterling well you can't really because you, that's exactly what you're suggesting it's trying to use a currency without a payments network because the payments network is you know is managed and uh, largely run by the Bank of England so if we cut ourselves off from the Bank of England by becoming independent then we dis- we get disconnected from the payments network and it then becomes impossible. Uh, to send money from one bank to another bank, the payment system is, is absolutely crucial. And uh, you know, certainly, I think one of the things that uh, the Scottish Currency Group is suggesting is that in an independent Scotland, uh, you know, we don't have the UK-style hybrid system. We have a a payments network that is 100% owned and regulated by the central bank, and which the commercial banks simply use but don't have any uh, ownership or control over. I think the other important point to touch on
0: for our audience as well is that the central bank is also the creator of the currency as well. Do you want to uh, elaborate a little bit more for the audience about that particular function?
1: I'm not sure whether I'd quite say that the central bank's is the creator of the currency. It, it sort of does that as the agent of the treasury, but it's really the, it's, it's, you know, it's the national treasury or the finance ministry, whatever, which creates the currency by issuing uh, spending into the economy uh, and the the central bank is simply the agent that actually implements those payments. Um, so it's really a sort of it's a sort of um, you know two-person dance between the the national treasury and the central bank that actually creates the currency. Now,
0: you have a resolution ready for the SNP conference on a Scottish central bank. Why do you want to bring this resolution forward right now?
1: The part of the resolution that the Dalkeith branch submitted which was uh, I, I'm the secretary of the Dalkeith branch um, uh, was about drafting the legislature or getting a draft bill ready uh, for the establishment of the Scottish Reserve Bank as the future central bank of Scotland and that's simply that um, we need to be ready so uh, you know we, there's no reason why that can't be done in advance of having a referendum or whatever it is that secures independence And if we do have that ready, then that shortens the timetable and means that uh, we have much more chance of being ready to introduce the currency a month or two after the formal independence day. And that's important because it's extremely dangerous uh, to carry on using sterling for more than a very short time. Uh, after Independence Day, uh,
2: Tim, you said a couple of months after Independence. Um, is that when you'd be suggesting that we would move from using uh, sterling to using the Scottish currency after a couple of months of the Independence Day? Yes, at most.
1: You know, so uh, if uh, you know, if Independence Day was the thirtieth of uh, November, twenty twenty-five, St. Andrew's Day, then you'd be introducing the currency, for example, at the. The last weekend in January, something of that sort of order.
2: Great. So this would be this could be months after winning independence, but when we set an official date for our our our, um, our move to an independent country.
1: Yeah, I think the you know the the sort of timetable people seem to envisage is that you know if there was a vote in September 2023, you'd be talking about the actual date of independence being two to three years later, which is why I suggested Saint Andrew's Day 2025 as as your formal you know thing that's going to go down in the history book as the independence day great it's you know it's, it's, you're certainly not independent the day after you have a vote for independence you know because that's just not the way it happens that that starts the process you know in india um for example the you know the process of independence really started in 1945 with the appointment of manbatten as the viceroy the actual independence day uh, wasn't until August uh, 1947.
0: Could you also explain to our audience as well the importance of having your central bank and your currency in place for independence?
1: With a very short term agreement with the Bank of England to, uh, you know, to allow it and uh, support um, the transition, then you know, we can manage to carry on using sterling for a couple of months after independence day. But uh, you know we can't do it lo- much longer than that because the Bank of England wouldn't allow it. You know that would mean uh, that they were allowing foreign banks to access the UK payment system. Uh, they were expecting, you know an independent Scotland would be expecting the Bank of England to provide funding to what's a completely foreign bank that has nothing to do with the UK anymore. Uh, you know, and they're not they're not going to do that. They've made it quite clear that uh, uh, that you know. They're not going to provide a sort of de facto currency union with Scotland uh, after independence. So we need to take, you know, we need to take that as a warning and make sure that we are ready to for the day when uh, the Bank of England says, "Right, you're on your own." So Tim,
0: do you think that there's a wide misunderstanding about central banks, and that the successive UK governments often try to paint them? As independent institutions, when in fact they are actually answerable to elected politicians. I mean, I see this happening also with the oil and gas authority. Um, do you think that's the case?
1: Yeah, so the, the, I'd say this is this is a, a recent phenomenon that uh, the idea that uh, you know you pretend that the central bank isn't part of the government and you know, it's not part of the state uh, really just goes back to maybe the the nineteen eighties. It didn't happen in the UK until 1998, when 1998, 1990, yeah, the the Banking Act 1998, when uh, uh, Gordon Brown decided that uh, he was going to uh, restore independence to the Bank of England, which uh, um, you know it was nationalised in 1946 precisely to make it clear that it wasn't independent.
0: Yeah, I I think this I think this is is something that. Um, is an act of smoke and mirrors on the part of the UK government. I think it's personally, I think it's quite deliberate. So I know that your resolution has been quite shortened, quite drastically shortened for conference. But there are a couple of points that you make in the long form version. Um, the first is that the central bank should be active in ensuring full employment and on national resilience as well. So how do you envisage the central bank contributing towards these goals as opposed to politicians?
1: Uh, well, it can ensure that, uh, or contribute towards ensuring that the money is available for the politicians to implement policies which will create full employment. There's been a tendency amongst politicians for various reasons to try and put a sort of a buffer organisation uh, in the, in between them and the voters. So, you know, instead of politicians accepting that they're responsible for regulating the oil and gas industry, they set up a sort of a quango that they say, "Oh, well, well, we've handed that over to the oil and gas authority, so it's their job." And if it, you know, if something goes wrong, then the politicians say, "Nothing to do with us, it's them."
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Uh, <laughs> which which is a cop-out. And um it's just a sort of means of hiding behind uh, some unelected body, but ultimately, you know, the you know, as a President of the United States had the sign on his desk, you know, the buck stops here here, and it stops with the politicians who are in power. And it should be made to stop with them. So, you know, if there's massive unemployment, it's their job to do something about it. To achieve that, then uh, you should be using uh, fiscal policy, uh, which is, you know, the government spending and taxation and not expecting central bankers to try and bail you out of a hole uh, instead.
2: It's interesting, because that's what Claudia Sam, who worked at the Fed, said was happening very much in the States, that it was being pushed towards the Fed to solve some of these problems. And she was encouraging people to understand that the Fed works on behalf of the government. Um, And there definitely was this, I really like that phrase of a buffer organisation between the politicians and the public, and the central bank did seem to be taking some flack. And, And Claudia had said that the Fed wasn't popular because it had been portrayed as, as this or this institution that had all the power, and obviously it, it didn't have that. Well, now that I've now that I've got you, I'd like to discuss my kind of pet topic, which is the Sustainable Growth Commission, and you mentioned it earlier, um, and I just wanted to expand on this idea of sterlingisation.
1: Yeah, sterlingisation, the Growth Commission plan. I mean, it's an interesting thing to talk about, but for Scotland as a as, as a as a large um, a relatively large developed economy to try to use the currency of another country, which is what you're saying, would happen. That uh, uh, you know, the um, we would we would be an independent country using sterling, which is the currency of our next-door neighbour. Uh, that would be a, a a rather radical experiment in uh, monetary policy because no other developed country, sophisticated economy, has ever tried to use somebody else's currency. Um you know, the The eurozone isn't a case of using somebody else's currency because it's a it's a currency union with a shared currency. And that's completely different. Uh, You know, what we're talking about with sterlingization is using a completely foreign currency over which we have no control. uh, And we're going to expect everything to carry on as it did before independence. And it won't. Um, People might hold up. that is
2: such a good perspective because it is something radical. And I certainly think that the s the, um, the p administration is trying to um, sell that as some kind of way to transition. And, but as you said, no one else is doing this. It's completely untried. So many more countries have launched their own currency than have kept the currency. Of another developed neighbouring nation, so it's no, a really, really good perspective. But this takes me back to the Sustainable Growth Commission. This is part of the, official. the semi-official document that was backed by this administration. This looks doesn't this doesn't look commensurate with the resolution that you're making about the Scottish Bank, uh, the Scottish um, Reserve Bank. Is that well, it isn't
1: commensurate with the Go- Growth Commission. Uh, what I've been doing since April 2019 is to. Uh, torpedo the growth commission and sink it into the Mariana Trench, uh, because uh, it's a, it's a completely ludicrous, the appendix C stuff is completely ludicrous. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, as you say, the, you know, the idea that you can just carry on using sterling and, you know, people say, oh, but Panama uses the U S dollar. Uh, it's, you know, if we, if we, did, I had the house of, house of parliament library look into Panama. So, uh, Almost all transactions in Panama are carried out in cash. They discovered that 90% of Panamanians have never actually done a digital transaction. Um, So uh, all they have to do is to have enough dollar bills in circulation to allow the economy to function in cash. And that's not the situation in Scotland at all, where we're 97% digital in terms of payments. A lot of people probably don't even use banknotes at all. And that means that we have to rely on the computer networks between the banks, which are controlled by the Bank of England. So they're controlled by a foreign country. Why is that foreign country going to process our payments for us? It won't. So, you know, the uh, sterlingization risks a complete breakdown of the banking system uh, and paralysis of the economy. Yeah, and one thing I'd like to
2: add to that is because I, I I agree with you in principle, but of course the Bank of England could do that. It could it could definitely say, yeah, we'll keep processing your your payments, and and you know we'll allow you to use this, but at what cost? and how does this impact all the other things that we've got to negotiate and our role as an independent nation if we give across this hugely fundamentally important part uh, to the the Bank of England you, you so, are
1: effectively then negotiating a de facto currency union and you would be you would have to agree that the Bank of England would have full control over all financial institutions in Scotland you know and uh, we would have to do whatever they tell us to do in terms of uh, regulation, uh, how the banks work, you know, interest rates, um, what reserves they need to keep, uh, and so on. So all of that is is handed over uh, to London.
2: But but within the Sustainable Growth Commission, I think that's what's implied. And, and, and again, I think you've highlighted a slightly different perspective on the Sustainable Growth Commission is that it is a de facto currency union because the, the Sustainable Growth Commission talks about grandfathering of regulations from the financial services industry. And it kind of says without saying it, we'll do very much business the same as it is happening in, in Westminster and in the City of London and in England. And I don't think that's been made clean enough within the discussions around the sustainable growth commission would you agree that that's there it's maybe just a bit hidden
1: when we become independent then you know all the existing law stays as it is until such time as we change it so you know the 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 laws on financial regulation will be exactly what they are at the moment until and until an, you know um we pass something different and i think we will do that we've been looking at that in the um working working group on regulation within the scottish currency group and i think we're moving very strongly towards suggesting a canadian model of financial regulation for the banks um which has things like uh uh, banking licenses expire after five years and have to be renewed every five years Uh, bankers have to be professionally qualified otherwise they're not allowed to serve in senior positions in the banks Uh, mergers of large banks are not are not allowed Um, And interestingly, Canada didn't have any particular problem with its banks in 2008. We have to actually legislate for that and change it.
2: Absolutely, and I think most independent supporters would be aghast if they thought that our regulations were going to be the same as what's currently happening in the City of London. So it's really good to think about how we can do this differently. And and as you said, it would be impossible for us to do that if we were in some kind of de facto currency union or or, or understanding. Yeah.
1: And the, the interesting point for people is that uh, the, uh, as I understand it. Um, and I'm not I'm not as expert on the Canada model as uh, our uh, convener of the working group dr. Robbie mockery from heriot Watt University but uh, uh, the Canadian banking regulatory system is essentially the Scottish one from the 19th century and it was set up by Scots in Canada and they've kept it going whereas we had we outsourced it to London uh, so if we are in you know if we do go with recommending a Canadian style system then we're just bringing back uh, the traditionally prudent uh, in a scottish approach to finance that uh, we managed to lose ourselves
0: yeah um i noticed uh, on linkedin yesterday that the uh, bank of england is it's writing about a central bank digital currency would you like to uh, give our audience some some of your thoughts on that tim yeah
1: well, i'm a bit skeptical about central bank digital currencies because i don't you know there is a technical solution and you know it's a technical solution it's all to do with sort of new computer technology and things uh, and therefore it's sort of sexy and you know flavor of the moment but I don't quite see what the problem is that it's trying to address you know we already have a digital currency you know as I said uh, uh, you know 97 of transactions in Scotland you waft your card at the card reader uh, that's a digital currency you know why, why do you need another digital currency um you know but I you know I'm prepared prepared to be convinced that there is a reason why or benefit to somebody uh, as to why you might have a central bank digital currency which effectively is uh, there's a central bank paper currency which is the banknote and I think the central bank digital currency is designed to be a sort of digital replacement for a banknote that would then be issued by the central bank and not a a commercial bank but um, as I say you'd have to ask what the benefit is and benefit to who now one of the pioneers in central bank digital currencies is the bank of china in the people's republic and you know unquestionably they're doing it in order to exercise control over the citizens because if you're using a central bank digital currency to make all your payments it means the central bank has a record of everything you purchase you know and if they decide that you're a bit subversive and they don't like you they can just uh hand it over to the security police and disconnect you from the the system so you could be left with no money no ability to make any payments and uh, you know with the security police ha- chasing after you so you know that's a benefit for the state but i think it's probably not a benefit for the citizen yeah uh,
0: this is something that i i i understood as well from it that um you know literally the government can really just look at what you're spending money on, I guess the the pros, from what I understand as well, is that the commercial banking sector have certainly let down the population in the more rural aspects of Scotland as well. So you know, I think there that, that might be a selling point for it. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I would tend to say that we should use an existing state-owned network, which we're going to inherit, known as the post office, and uh, you know, perhaps. If the banks are not really interested in providing people who don't have lots of money with banking facilities then we have a you know a people's bank or a you know like the german sparkasse or something like that that uh operates through the post office and um you know we'll provide basic banking and a sort of payment card or whatever to to everybody um and that seems to me a much you know that that's existing technology doesn't require anything sort of untried um and uh, it's the post office already has branches all over the country. It's got more branches probably than many of the most of the banks, if not all the banks. And um, it can provide cash uh, for businesses and um, things like that. And basic accounts, the payment card, you know, already does things like foreign exchange for going on holiday. Uh, so why not build on that? And it it can work with the central bank so that uh, the central bank ensures it's adequately funded and. Uh, solvent and so forth without any requirement to hand over to the state all the details of every single thing you've ever purchased.
2: Tim, I wanted to get your views on local currencies. Um, you know I'm sure you've had the Brixton Pound and the Bristol Pound. And how would that play a role within the um financial services sector in an independent Scotland?
1: Yeah you know, I've actually I've actually seen the the, the banknotes which the city of Bristol printed and you know they're proper um Banknotes to look very similar to the sort of things that the Bank of England does. Um, you can set, you can do that. I mean, it's an, a, the, the idea behind local currencies to try and get the money to actually circulate in the local area. So, uh, you know, if you have Bristol pounds, you can only spend them in Bristol. You can't use them to buy something on Amazon. Um, so, uh, you know, let's try to get um, you know people to sort of go to local shops and buy things locally rather than you know like. Uh, well, I think there was a story a few years ago that uh, um, the, when the upgrade of the road between Ullapool and Inverness was completed, uh, businesses in Ullapool were suddenly severely disadvantaged because all the people who bought in the local people in Ullapool who went to the Ullapool shops started doing a once a week trip to Inverness to go to the supermarket instead. Uh, so if you had a an Ullapool currency which could only be used in Ullapool, that would, that would uh, sort of discourage that. Um, but I think it's, in some senses, uh, having a local currency is something, you, you know, we could do now uh, as a, without having to wait for independence in that, you know, something like Edinburgh City Council could have a currency for, for Edinburgh. But I think uh, there is a, there's a problem in that um, people are not using banknotes very much. So it's much more difficult to have a digital local currency than it is to just print some banknotes and use those. Um, you know, it gets much more technically expensive to have payment cards and uh, you know a network that can uh, process those payments. So I probably suspect that local currencies are, are, have a, would have a limited role in in Scotland either now or before or after independence.
0: Um, And I think it's a really great idea. And also, interestingly, Olafur Margiersen from Iceland was saying that in Iceland, they actually had their own currency before they became independent. So clearly having your own currency before you become become independent is perhaps a way to move towards that too. Um, But yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Tim, as well, Before we finish is you had another resolution uh, uh, for conference, which is about the civil service in an independent Scotland. And I think when you understand that the money uh, from the civil service is essentially coming down through the Treasury, going into the civil service and then spent out into the, the wider economy. Do you then realise how uh, toxic it has been for the, the the United Kingdom that so much of that civil service has been concentrated in one city, which is London, which is why it becomes really essential to think about your resolution when you're talking about spreading the civil service throughout an independent Scotland. Do you want to just give us
1: a little few points about that before we finish the show? The uh, the resolution basically says that. Um, uh, If we follow the example of Denmark we're going to have something like 50,000 civil servants, uh, core civil servants in the Scottish Government. At the moment the Scottish Government's about seven and a half thousand civil servants so it's it's, it's pretty small, it's nowhere near what is necessary uh, to run things like the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Defence, Ministry of Finance uh, and all the sort of things which we don't have at the moment. So there's going to need to be a lot of new positions. And the resolution says that they should be allocated to all 32 councils in proportion to the existing population uh, of that council. Uh, And that we give a premium of 20% or more to councils which we deem to be currently disadvantaged or remote or very rural. So that's places like uh, the Helen and Shire, Orkney, Shetland, uh, Dumfries and Galloway or or perhaps Inverclyde uh, as an example of a deprived area. So they would get they would get a boost in uh, extra jobs and you know, to put some numbers on this 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 sort of policy would mean maybe two thousand jobs going to Dumfries and Galloway, uh, which could be a ministry. It could be something like the Ministry of Agriculture having its headquarters in Dumfries, uh, and you know that as Karen said that, that that's a major local employer source of money going into the local economy, not just from wages but from contracts. You know, buying IT support, catering. Um, cleaning services, uh, you know, whatever else uh, they would need uh, going into that local area. We certainly don't want to make the mistake of the UK and put, you know, another 40,000 civil service jobs into Edinburgh. Yeah,
0: yeah. Do you think that fundamentally spreading your civil service around any country, and I know that Germany does this differently from... we. I mean, I think everyone does this differently from the UK. If you spread your civil service around the country, you know, and the money is flowing as we understand it from the government to the civil service and then out into the private economy, not vice versa, which is many people's perception that that would create much better economic stability in an independent Scotland.
1: Um, I think it's I think it's more about fairness and uh, you know regional development and having a balanced economy. Uh, you know, the UK is an exceptionally unbalanced economy because you have, you know, one part of the country, the southeast of England, which, you know, they say, "Oh, we're doing fantastically. we You know, southeast of England is absolutely booming. The rest of the, you know, the rest of England is going down the toilet, and uh, you know, that's not a healthy situation at all. Um, you know, it's not healthy for people. You know, people's mental well-being and things. Because, for example, in the north of England, you know, the children are going to leave because they'll get down to London. I Maybe mean, that yeah. happens in Scotland as well. In, in s bank um, quite a lot of our neighbors are fairly elderly and i think all the children except one from our four neighbors uh, have moved to london for jobs you know that's not a good situation um but it's not good environmentally either because uh, you have uh, underused resources in the, you know, the north of england that houses which are empty factories and things are all falling down because people aren't using them for anything and yet in the southeast then you've got a shortage of water there's a Chronic uh, shortage of housing is ridiculously expensive. Everything's crammed into one area. That's really, you know, it's a terrible way to run a, run a country. I think <laughs> a hearing
2: <laughs> point there it is no one else really does it like this. You know, it is the United Kim- Kingdom. It's an anomaly. One point I wanted to say that the, the Scottish economy will be a very complex system. And one of the ways that you support a complex system is by having resilience and having these councils that have got their own... Um, it, you know, jobs have been been, give, been planted there, and they have better economies. It makes the whole economy more resilient. And when we look at the UK economy at the moment, it's not a resilient economy because so much is down to London and the southeast. And we could definitely move away from that with a different economic approach
1: for Scotland. The the you know the SNP Scottish government is as guilty of trying to sort of centralise everything uh, as uh, London, and you know they really should stop dictating to local government uh, you know and say well you have to do this and you have to do that and all this money's ring fenced and we're going to tell you how to spend it you know you need to take you know allow lo- you know, local people to take responsibility and the council should be able to collect much more of their own revenue and decide how to spend it absolutely uh, we should also take on board leslie riddick's uh, point that we have councils which are far too big
0: Yeah, and you can see really on a very logical level why that is going to be better for your economy, really. Um, And and this, you know, moving away from this concentration of wealth in in just one area. Um, Tim, that's been a fantastic interview and I think it's been very enlightening for our listeners. And um, if you are an SNP member and you are a delegate at conference, then I think you should vote for this resolution, of course. Um, And um, yeah, I hope that this programme has helped to enlighten those who are going to conference and are voting on it.
1: What will be interesting to see at conferences is if there's any attempt by uh, the the sort of uh, anti having our own currency people in the leadership to sort of try and sabotage the, the resolution by telling people to vote against it or you know to remit back or something like that. So mm-hmm. We'll have to no, see. It's, very, it's going to be an
2: interesting test, absolutely, to see if we've come anywhere in the in the last twelve months.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks so much. I think, yeah. I think we've used enough of your time, Tim. Thank you so much for coming to Scotonomics. Uh, Thanks, you're Tim. You're
1: welcome.